0: open. Good morning everyone. It is very good to see you all here and we're continuing our series working through the book uh, or the letter to the church in Philippi, written by Paul from prison you remember uh, and we're going to be looking at those words starting at chapter 1 verse 20 together. Uh, let's pray before we start. Father we as we come to your word, each time we do so we, we recognize that we need your help because this is your word. This is the word inspired and given by your Holy Spirit, and so we ask for his help this morning, that we might not just understand it, but that these truths may be applied to our hearts, deep to our hearts, shaping the way that we think and affecting the way that we live, for we ask it in your precious name, amen. Well, I don't know if morbid curiosity has ever led you to look up uh, last words, last words that people have spoken, especially of famous people or historical uh, characters. I I have a sort of uh, certain fascination with these things, uh, especially when the last words of someone do really seem to give a lovely little potted summary of what their life was all about, So for example, here's a few to get you started. This is from uh, Siddhartha Gautama, that's the Buddha. So these are words from 483 BC. And he addressed his monks and he said, in translation, there should be a picture that goes up with these words on it. Behold, O monks, this is my advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. That's a summary of everything the Buddha was about, isn't it? Or here's words from Luciano Pavarotti, who died of pancreatic cancer in 2007. He addressed his manager with these final words, final recorded words. I believe that a life lived for music is an existence spent wonderfully. And this is what I have dedicated my life to. Yeah, there's no surprises there, I suppose, for for Pavarotti. Or how about this, then? These are the words, George Best, arguably the best footballer of his era, uh, but who lived a life of incredible, famous for incredible excess, and he died of liver failure in 2005. He left this as a note on his bedside as he slipped away, saying simply, don't die like I did. Poignant, isn't it? Or the actress Joan Crawford, Purportedly, her last words were yelled at her housekeeper, who was praying as Crawford died. Crawford said, don't you dare ask God to help me. (laughs) Wow. And they're very revealing statements, aren't they, all of these last words. The last words that amuse me the most are probably the final words of of General John Sedgwick, who served in the Union Army. I hope they haven't gone up already, have they? Uh, In the Union Army during the American Civil War, and he died in uh, 1864. His men had come under enemy fire, but Sedgwick kept his cool as he uttered his immortal final line. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. That's brilliant, isn't it? And we don't always get a chance to give much thought, I suppose, and preparation to our last words. Not everyone gets a chance. But here in these verses in the first chapter of Philippians, you have the Apostle Paul taking the opportunity of this letter to send what might possibly be his last words to his friends in Philippi. You have to remember the Apostle Paul is writing from confinement he's made that clear already he's in chains probably in Rome and he's under the constant watch of Caesar's palace guard as he writes these words he's awaiting trial he's waiting for his day in court at some point soon he expects to have his day in court where he will have to defend himself before the emperor and justify his belief that jesus christ is lord he is accused of being a troublemaker and a disturber of the peace in the empire a member of this growing jewish sect called the way one of these people that's been called christians who are are turning the world upside down around them and what's more we saw didn't we um, was it last week or the week before there's also troublemakers you know there's probably even in Rome but they're certainly all over the empire these troublemakers uh, and uh, they are stirring things up says Paul they are maligning him and they would love to have nothing more than Paul permanently off the scene out of the way so it's a precarious situation who knows what the outcome will be which way will the imperial court judge And remember, the Romans were not known for a gentle touch when a guilty verdict had been reached. And, you know, the empire was seen to be under threat. So these are the settings for what Paul says here in verses 20 to 26. What he says here gives us a deeply personal insight into what makes him tick. And so this morning, our sermon really is less about go and do and more about hey, stop and consider. Have a really good think about these things. Here he tells us, Paul's going to lay out for us his purpose, his philosophy, and his predicament. So let's start with Paul's purpose. It's in verse 20. Have a look. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Paul's purpose. Paul's purpose in life, that is during his His physical existence, this side of the grave, that's what he's talking about here, is that Christ is exalted. Do you see that at the end of that verse? Whether by life or death. So if he is found innocent, when he gets his trial, and he is pardoned, he will exalt the name of Christ. And if he is found guilty, it will be because he exalts and magnifies the name of Christ and he will continue to do so and that's how he will use his life now I mean if you've ever read any of the stories you will know the amazing courage that many Christian martyrs had when they faced their final deaths uh, and uh, their final moments and their deaths the accounts of their deaths are nothing short of amazing sometimes they leave you thinking wow I mean that's I just that could never be me and sure, some, some of them, you know, in these accounts, it, that might, might be because the recording of those accounts was, was, was actually put out there to try and paint them in almost supernatural terms to inspire uh, Christians under persecution around them. So sure, people might have over-egged the pudding, you know, and put in angels and halos and all sorts of stuff. But the testimony of history is that even the worst waves of persecution did not make those who went before us so scared that they hid their faith or that they ran for cover, tried to pretend they weren't Christians. I mean, some did, but the church didn't. The church has always had this courage. But where does that courage come from? Well, a few pointers as we try to get to grips with what Paul is saying in this verse. So look at verse 20 there with me. The expression it begins with, where Paul says, I eagerly expect, that's a really interesting word. It's just one word there, eagerly expect. And it comes from three words, away, head, watch. It's a very weird compound word, isn't it? I, away, head, watch, says Paul. So it has the sense then of, and this is what's being communicated here, watching something so intently that you keep your head turned away from all possible distractions. That's the sense of the word. Got it? So so later in the letter, Paul's going to pick up an illustration of the Christian life being like a race, that you're like a runner, right? Running a race. And that picture's already here in this word. That's that's what we've got here. You've got a picture, that runner, focused, undistracted, eyes down down the track, on the finish line, and a glance over the shoulder to check behind him, see where everyone else is, that could cost the race. So you keep your head fixed and forwards, keeping your eyes on the prize. Got it? And then there's the word hope. So it's, Paul mixes this, this word, with hope, doesn't he? I eagle expect and hope. I'm sure that, that, that you, mo- most of you, if not all of you, will be familiar with the way that the Bible uses the word hope. It doesn't t- it's not, it's not, it's not a, an uncertainty. It's a certain hope. It's not the hope of, you know, I hope eBay will deliver my goods tomorrow. I mean, that's some hope, isn't it? Or, you know, I hope the weather will be nice for the church walk. Hey, Dan. It's not that kind of hope. Hope in the Bible refers to that which is sure and certain. Sure and certain. You haven't got it yet, you can't see it yet, but you're absolutely certain. It's like a big anchor. I mean, we used anchor as a symbol for hope, don't we? The Christian symbol for hope is an anchor. It's like a big anchor fastened to an unmovable rock right down into the bedrock. And what is that rock? What is the rock that we anchor our hope to? Well, Paul's already told us in verse 6, do you remember? It's a key verse in the whole of the letter. Verse 6, God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, remember, God, the sovereign God, who began his saving work in us, will carry it on through life and will complete it when Christ returns. That's one solid rock. That truth of that verse is a rock. And it's solid because it is formed and founded by what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross. The Apostle Peter puts it, amazingly clearly when he talks about what Christ did at the cross listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 3 you should commit these verses to memory Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God it was there says Peter on the cross that all of our sins were paid for in full once for all it was there that the only righteous, the only sinless man ever to live, Jesus Christ, took the place of unrighteous sinners like you and me. And that through that universe-shattering act, he has opened the way for sinners to come to a holy God, the holy God who made them, welcomed as a loving father welcomes his long-lost children. Staggering truths. That is not the religion of the Buddha, is it? Work hard to gain your own salvation. This is a salvation that is all the work of God from beginning to end. And this, this gospel is what gives Paul confidence as he faces what lies ahead of him. That he will not be ashamed to testify about Christ and to preach Christ even before pagan kings and emperors. That's Paul's purpose, to expend all that he is so that Christ is exalted. Well, wow. I mean, how do you and I stack up? Is our purpose in life anything close to that? Hey, are we anchored on that same rock? Have we got our eyes on that prize? How can Paul's purpose be so focused? Well, to understand that, you need to look at Paul's philosophy. The worldview that acts as Paul's guiding principle in the way that he lives. What is it? Well, let me read you the uh, account of one martyrdom that happened in the second century. It's, It's the martyrdom of Polycarp. And these words were precious to him also. He was martyred in 155 AD before the, uh, and he was, uh, he was brought before the Roman proconsul, Quadratus. This is how the dialogue went, apparently. Eighty and six years, says Polycarp. I have served the Lord and he's never done me any harm, rather much good. How can I blaspheme my king and saviour? Quadratus replies, how can you believe in only one God? There are many gods. Are you an atheist? Polycarp says, I am a Christian. If you do not understand our doctrines, make an appointment. I shall explain them to you fully. Quadratus replies, worship Caesar and you may live. Polycarp, if we live, we live unto the Lord. If we die, we die unto the Lord. Therefore, either way, we are the Lord's. Quadratus, I have wild beasts. I shall feed you to them. Polycarp, bring them to me to live is christ to die is gain i shall cause you to be burnt to ashes you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and are yourself ignorant of the everlasting fiery judgment that is prepared for the wicked why do you delay bring against me what you please staggering isn't it but i don't know how much of that is is poetic license but it makes you think doesn't it wow what a testimony For me to live, verse 21, is, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's philosophy. This is a simple, powerful, and brilliant little sentence, isn't it? It is amazing. And it's not surprising that it's so well known. But what precisely is Paul saying here? Let's dig into it a little bit. For me... For to me, to live is Christ. What does that mean? The first part of that verse is explained actually in the verse that follows. If you want to get its explanation nice and clear. Look at what he says in verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, for me to live, yeah, yeah, this will mean fruitful labour for me. For me to live is going to be fruitful labour, yeah? How will Christ be exalted by Paul continuing to live why how because living will mean fruitful labor now hold that thought because we've seen fruit mentioned already before in chapter one it's in verse 11 where Paul is praying that the fruit of righteousness will be produced in the Philippians in his in his friends He says in verse 11 that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's Paul's prayer in chains. But if Paul lives, if the sentence goes his way and he lives, if he is freed and able to continue his ministry, he will be able to do more than just pray from a distance, do you see? Or to write letters, he'll be able to go. To teach, to train, to disciple the Philippian church that he loves so much. To go and do fruitful labour amongst them and others. Now do you see how these thoughts connect together? Where does this fruit come from? We'll look at what verse 11 says there, still on the screen. It comes through Jesus Christ. And brings glory and praise to God. To live is Christ. Paul is eager to live his life, to, to, to minister so that the fruit of righteousness is produced in others and Christ is exalted. That's what he's all about, isn't it? That, in other words, that Christ should minister. That Christ himself should be active in and through Paul's labours. To live is Christ. See, he blurs it all together; it becomes one thing for him. Now we'll get to the part where, despite even that, which is glorious, isn't it? Paul's he's dying as gain, <laughs> but just look a bit further at, at how he he describes why living for him is Christ. Have a look at verse twenty-four. He carries on. It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body that I live. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, I will live, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. I mean, do you see what he's saying in those verses as he just keeps expanding and pushing this thought? Here's the point. Despite the personal gain that Paul would get from dying, He's confident of of joy and peace forevermore with his Lord. Despite the personal gain, he is convinced that they will be blessed by him remaining alive. Why? Why will they be blessed? Well, Well, because he'll be able to play a part in the continuing work of God amongst them. So that for them, verse 25, look, there is progress, there is growth, there is movement. And joy in their faith. Paul would get maximum joy from departing and being with Christ. But if he remains, it will be for their joy. Do you see? Look at verse 26. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. And that's quite a challenge, right there, isn't it? If you're following that line, that's a complicated line of thought. But if you're following it, it's an amazing challenge. Can we look at at the life that we might have lying ahead of us and the possibility that, 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 that comes from our carrying on living and think to ourselves that those around us might be so blessed and Christ might be so exalted if we carried on living for a bit longer that it's actually an argument for us to put off heaven just for a bit. What a challenge. But that's why for Paul to live is Christ. He continues, doesn't he? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain. You know, you, you sometimes hear the expression used, don't you? He or, or she lives for, dot, dot, dot. Yeah? He lives for his car. She lives for her career. What is it that you live for? What would people say about you? What do you live for? It's usually told by what you give all your time to, isn't it? Do you live for pleasure or for fun? Many people do. Many people I've worked with over the years make no bones about the fact that they live, basically they're living for Friday night or for the weekend. The rhythm of their life, when you look at it, is simply saving for the next holiday and going on the next holiday and then saving for the next holiday and going on the next holiday. And is that you? Is that what you're living for? Or, or, or do you live for your job? Is that where you get your sense of identity, perhaps, Where people look up to you, where you set all of your goals? Or do you live for your kids? Living for my kids, I live for my kids. In a sense, you've, you've kind of got to devote most of your life to them when they're little, don't you? Most of your time goes there. But have they become an idol? Is it through your children that you started to find your sense of worth and identity? How you think about yourself? Is your legacy, your progeny, those that you will leave behind when you're gone, is that what consumes your thoughts and what they will turn out like? People live for all kinds of stuff, don't they? Pets, hobbies, pastimes, sports, you name it. Paul openly declares he lives for Christ-magnifying fruit in himself and others. That's That's what he's living for. And can you see how radically different that is? I mean, if you can't, you must be blind, I think. But let me point something out here. One of these, only one of these things is ultimately worth living for. If what you're living for isn't Christ, here's the problem. You'll lose it when you die. Death just holds loss for you. Let that sink in. It doesn't matter how devoted you are to what you're living for death's going to just sweep it away in an instant to die is loss but for Paul and for all those who will follow his example his way of life death only holds the prospect of gain death will only bring him closer to the one that he's living for and that he wants to see produced in him And this is not armchair philosophising for Paul, is it? This philosophy of life. Paul makes this statement with years of hardship for the cause of Christ behind him. He's turned his back, he tells us later on, on a life of pursuing prestige and academic and religious achievements. And he's taken up a cross to follow Christ. And he sums it all up in chapter 3, verse 8, saying, I consider all of those things, everything, a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Is that anything close to your philosophy of life? Is that what drives you? We've seen Paul's purpose. We've seen the underpinning philosophy. Finally, Let's just look briefly here at Paul's predicament, then, in light of these things. Look at verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. And we can see it, can't we, the dilemma? Paul is basically saying, as he sits there in chains, awaiting trial, a trial that will determine, at least on one level, whether he lives or dies he says to himself, I'm, I'm spoilt for choice. I am torn between the two. Torn between the prospect of living and carrying on being Jesus' hands and feet and mouth to bless others and dying, which is better by far because he'll actually be with Christ face to face with the one he lives for. Paul describes the, the describes dying, actually, there, as to depart, to depart. It's a word used, according to the scholars, for you're supposed to picture soldiers packing up and breaking camp, or a ship that's pulling up its anchor and untying all of the ropes from the dock, ready to embark on a great journey. That's a wonderful way of speaking about death, isn't it? To see death that way. Death is moving on from a situation that was only ever meant to be temporary, just a a momentary docking or or just camping on the way to a destination, pulling up the anchors, moving from that situation that's meant to be temporary and going to the final destination. Paul says here then that he would love to up anchor, to set sail for glory, to be with Christ, to rest from his labours but he loves his friends and he loves to see the fruit of Christ's righteousness in them so much so that he actually feels torn now of course of course from his personal point of view to be with Christ is far better i mean there's no competition really in paul's mind but what fruit might christ bear in others through him can you feel the dilemma I hope that we really can personally feel it. You know, Brothers and sisters, I speak to enough believers who are nearing death to know that the truths in these verses are essential to grasp if we are to face eternity with confidence and with peace. I've said before how I, I remember my own father, for all of his faults, nearing death, before he started to lose his mental faculties, he went through a phase of reading piles of books about heaven. And you go into the lounge and all those books would be in this little pile in the 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 table by his armchair. And it struck me as I visited him one time that it just looked like a pile of travel guides. You know, like someone was really excited about a trip they were going to make. Oh, that we could say with the Apostle Paul, you know what? I'm torn. I am spoiled for choice. I'd love to keep on living a few more years because I can see how that opens up the possibility for me to continue a while longer being Christ's hands and feet and mouth. What a joy that would be to see people growing because of what I'm doing. But I'd rather depart. I can't wait to pack up my tent, to up anchor, to set out, to be face to face, forever present, with the lover of my soul. Paul's dilemma. Well, as we close, let's take a moment to apply this to our hearts, to consider our life, how we're using it, our death. How we're facing it. What are we living for? Do we have confidence to say, to die is gain? Let's just take a moment in silence to think about those things. And then I'll pray to close.